All right, today I'll be reading from uh, James chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 13. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you who have dishonored the poor, is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as law breakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. A friend this week um, talked to me about uh, a devastating separation in his marriage. He cried a lot. There were a lot of tears. He recounted the story to me play by play of how it all went in the last five years and it was just awful. But he also spoke with a kind of freshness and clarity. It was like I was looking in his eyes and I saw the real him. And he said these words, he said, it melted my monster. And I thought that was a very strange thing to say. It melted my monster. He never really explained what it meant, but there was a kind of humility in the way he was talking after such pain and heartache and tears. And there was a new kind of kindness. And we never really got to talk about what we had gotten on the phone to talk about to begin with. But he said, that's okay. We really needed to have this conversation. And that just started me in this process of asking, what in your life has started the process of melting your monster? Think about it. What, what have you had a monster grow inside of you, whether it was rage, whether it's anger, whether it was victimization, whether it's bitterness, callousness, judgment, and that monster grew and grew. Maybe it was relational discord with people and you just said, I can't, I'm an island. I will be strong. I will be independent. No one can touch me. This face is like ice cold. I will never cry, right? And a monster started to form in me. What was it that melted that monster? Maybe the monster isn't melted. Maybe it is. <clears throat> James is clear in his final two verses in this passage that that process must start from within. He says, mercy triumphs over judgment. And our monsters are always judgmental. Always the monsters inside of us are judgmental. And he says, mercy 
triumphs over judgment. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, he says, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So Christians believe that sin is proof that not only can we not live up to God's standard, but we can't live up to our own standard. Sin literally, as we've talked about, means missing the mark. And in a perfect world, the mark should not be missed. So in heaven, that mark is not going to be missed. That's perfection. That's the presence of God where we feel and experience his fullness, his goodness, and his love. And in heaven, there can't be any sin. Don't we all agree with that? So how do we get there? Because if you're like me, you sinned this morning. You did something that prevented you from entering into the presence of God just this very morning, if not this week, over and over in different ways. We are guilty as charged. By our own standard, we're guilty. By God's standard, we're definitely guilty. And that leaves us oftentimes ashamed. Speak and act, he says, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives Freedom, but he underscores judgment because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. So God's mercy can't exist apart from judgment. It actually is good for us to admit daily, I am guilty as charged. And just let that sink in fully as the process of melting your monster. See, your monster inside of you gets to reign supreme when you say, I am not guilty. Every, the beginning of every bad situation <laughs> in my family has started when I say, I am not guilty, right? And then things start to fall apart. Because I am guilty. I am absolutely guilty as charged. So why not start the conversation by saying, I am guilty? That's where we start with Jesus. But the law gives freedom because as soon as we have said, I am guilty, Jesus instantaneously says, and you're pardoned. You're acquitted of your crimes. And that is the law that gives freedom. That is the mercy that frees us from judgment. And that is how mercy triumphs over judgment. God's mercy melts our monsters. It takes away its power to guilt us and shame us. Christ's death and resurrection slays sin once and for all. And even when we accept it, we feel that illegitimacy. So if you have just crossed uh, your spouse or your kids or a friend or your boss, and you know you're guilty as charged. And if they are truly quick to forgive, it's almost as if you're like, nah, I can't, I can't get off that easy. Literally, I can't get off that easy. Like, tell me how I need to be punished. I need to like get, I need to feel this. I need to, I need to wallow in this. But the Christian message is, if you can authentically say you're guilty, if you can come before Jesus at his throne, he will no sooner see you than say you're forgiven. Mercy 
triumphs over judgment. Mercy melts our monsters. In our culture, I've talked about this lots, we have two, we have two very black and white sides to Jesus' fullness. Jesus is the fullness of truth and grace. Okay, so we have in our culture a lot of truth at times, and we have in our culture a lot of grace at times. So you'll see this in Portland. You'll see people say, oh, everything, you should be able to do everything. Legalize drugs, like do everything. Just it's all fine. Grace, you need to accept everybody. That same person, an hour later, let's just put it in my shoes, I, as that same person, have said, oh, yeah, we should love everybody. And then I've turned and I've aimed my judgment at somebody. So I oscillate between grace and truth. But Jesus is the fullness of grace and truth. And he embodies both of those things completely. That has been the riddle, the paradox that has just totally been occupying me for, I think, over a year. It's just how could he be the fullness of truth and grace? How could he be completely just and the ultimate judge and yet be the most loving, supreme being? How can these two things exist together? Because John 1.14 says Jesus came in the flesh in the fullness of grace and truth. And if we are to be like Jesus, that means we need both. We need both. So what James does is he says, okay, we need both. Let me start with truth. That's how he starts this passage. He says, we need to start with truth so we can all appreciate the grace. And so what does he do? He doesn't come with his truth to culture. He doesn't come with his judgment to Portland. He comes and he levels his judgment at the church. That's what he's writing to. He says, my brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Before you start leveling your truth out in the world in any way, look inside yourself and look at the body of believers that you're with. Work it out there. And then you will see how difficult it is. And then maybe you'll think twice before judging a total stranger. Maybe that's like a, a, little, a little window into the fullness of grace and truth, into the understanding that until we can truly grapple with how far we fall short, until we can really take that in, we have no business going to anyone else. That would solve a lot of conflicts in my home. That would solve a lot of my own self-righteousness to just take that in and say, I am guilty as charged. I do not understand. So that's where James starts. He says, let's start with truth. And what he uses, what we call mirrors, a mirror story, or what I call a mirror story. Last week, we looked at that idea of a mirror. Here he's using a story to reflect back the congregation as a means of grace. What does that word mean? What does that phrase mean, a means of grace? As a way to bring them to grace. As a means to grace, as a, as a way to bring them into the love of Jesus, he has to show them the truth of who they are. He has to hold up a mirror through a story so that his congregation can say, oh, we, we, need, we need grace. We need a lot of grace. I work in, in the consulting work I do. I work with a presentation coach, and he, he consults with 
uh, businesses, companies that work with middle management, CEOs, anyone who's doing a business presentation. And one of the things he says is he says, you have to videotape yourself giving the presentation because video does not lie. So you will, you will look at that video and you'll go, really? The whole time that I was silent, I've noticed this about myself. What, I grind my teeth when I'm listening to somebody and my jaw's going, I really do that? Like video doesn't lie. It will tell you what you do. I'm, I'm, I'm washing my hands while I'm talking. I keep putting them in my pockets and back out, whatever. Video does not lie. And what that means is video holds you accountable to no, nobody's judging you. The video isn't judging you. You're allowed to see yourself and you're actually placing judgment on yourself. And so James is saying, hey, we don't have videotape yet. So I'm going to tell a story. And actually the videotape before that existed was the community of believers. Were each other's videotape. Do we have trusting enough relationships? Do you, do you trust me enough to be your videotape? Because that's what James is doing to this congregation. He's saying, trust me. I'm showing you what you're doing. I'm being a mirror. Within the community, they don't have videotape. They have to go to each other and say, hold me accountable. Be my mirror. Can I trust you enough to actually ask you to tell me something about myself? And then I will not buck up against you and go, how dare you criticize me? But I will actually humbly, as if I'm looking at the mirror at myself, go, wow, that was hard to hear, but I see it just as well as if I'm looking right at it. Thank, thank you. Like, thank you for telling me so that now I know and I can change. There's a long tradition of doing this in the Old Testament. This was the job of the prophets. Uh, and often what happened is that the kings that were dealing with those prophets who held up the mirror, who showed the videotape, would kill the messenger. This, there's a long tradition of, of going, Jeremiah, Isaiah, like, we don't want to hear what you have to say about us. You're saying bad stuff about us, and we're the king. Get out of here. So they would kill the messenger. Well, Jesus inherited this role. And he would tell people, he would say, let me be your mirror. Let me tell you a story that will act as a mirror for you. Let me show you your own videotape. He did this with the rich young ruler. Remember, the rich young ruler walks up to him and says, I have followed the law and I have done everything. Jesus says, okay, that's a mirror. You said you've done all this stuff. So now I'm just going to ask you, look in there. Have you given everything you own to the poor? Ticked the guy off. He went off. Didn't just tick him off. Jesus showed mirrors to everybody. And soon enough, they crucified him. Because he was just showing them what they were. In the Old Testament, the prophet Nathan talked to David. Some of you know the story, 2 Samuel chapter 12. And he confronts him regarding his relationship with a woman named Bathsheba. And David had covered up their affair. Some of you know the story. He had looked out his window. He'd seen her bathing on the roof. He said, I want that. Brought her to his room in the most relatable thing in the Me Too world. Fell hard. Made a fool of himself. Just horrible person. Covered it up. 
And the Lord commands Nathan to share a story, to show a videotape, to put up a mirror. And he tells a story of a rich man who took and killed a poor man's only lamb. And when David heard this story, he got really angry at the injustice. And then Nathan goes, you're that, you're that man. David had blood on his hands and he was guilty of killing Bathsheba's husband after committing adultery with her. His accountability had real consequences. Their, their, son, their, their offspring dies. It's a really challenging story. And in all of this process, David is facing himself in the mirror of this story. Because when David comes and tells him the story that reveals who he is to himself, David has nobody to fight but himself. He can kill Nathan, but that won't solve anything. He can kill the messenger. Just as, as the Jews killed Jesus, but it did not solve anything for them. Our rage and our vengeance does not solve anything about our own depravity. Instead, what has to happen is we have to accept the fullness of truth in that mirror of the story. So that's what James is doing here. He's saying, suppose, verse two, suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes. And a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you sow special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So we need to understand a few things about the story. Pastor and author Kurt Richardson says that this story is shorthand, uses some shorthand to show that the rich man is self-conscious in what he is wearing. He's what we would call ostentatious. He knows he's got a gold ring on. He put that gold ring on to come into that assembly. He's displaying his social standing and political influence. And he requires, in his presentation, he is requiring preferential treatment or he will move on. So he's testing the church. Will you treat me like royalty? And, he, and the two characters in the story are treated very differently. The royal person, whether he's a politician, whether he's a, a, a vassal of the king and, and like a duke, right, that would have like rulership or governance. He's shown a good seat. And the man in rags is said to sit on the floor by my feet. Now, the good seat was probably a seat that had a place to put his feet up. So he didn't even have to touch the filthy floor. At that time, floors might have not been as nice as they are here. And the other man is told, sit on the floor. This guy won't even have to touch the floor, but you sit right here at my feet. Sure, you can have front row seats, but it's in the grime and the muck of the floor. I'm going to attempt a sports illustration, even though I'm terrible at them. This is like if you go to um, Lakers game, Blazers game, and you take and you escort the rich person to the box seats, right? The perfect box seats. And you tell the other guy, ah, just there's up in the top of the bleachers and the nosebleeds, see if you can find something. Like you're lucky to have a seat. 
You're not prevented from being here, but you're actually, it's almost worse. You're allowed to be here, but you're demeaned by telling to go, go to the back. And Richards has said it's painful, but James has shown that the congregation has become a party to the oppression of the poor. And then James is doing the same thing that Nathan does. By the end of the passage, he's turning the tables. And rather than saying, I know you guys would never do that, he plays the role of the prophet. And in verse six, he says, you have dishonored the poor. Just like Nathan says, you are that man. James says, you have dishonored the poor. Hear that story, hear that mirror story, the videotape about how that happens in the congregation. Well, James has some information about the church at that time. He's not writing to a specific church. He's writing to the the church at large. He's saying, I know that this is happening here. You have dishonored the poor. So he's leveling the truth at them in order to get them to wake up. Now, why do we struggle? We know that this is true. We know that this happens. We know that we will do this in life. Why do we struggle to do this? We, we, do, we play favorites in lots of different directions as a church. We play it against race. They say that, you know, that adage is that Sunday morning at 10 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America. Churches, black churches, white churches. We, we do this. This is a thing that happens. We play favorites around gender, subconsciously, subliminally. We play it around age. We don't even know we're doing it. There's all sorts of ways we're doing it, but let's just stick with the rich and the poor in this text. Why does the church treat the rich and the poor this way? Well, I think there's three reasons that the church struggles to do this. One is that we have a lack of accountability. So the church has insulated itself and has become blind and we can't see our own weaknesses. This is why we need the mirror. This is why we need mirrors individually. This is why we need them as a small church with each other. This is why we need them as a small church so other churches maybe can speak into us what we're blind to. And this is why the American church needs a mirror held up by the international church to say, you guys think it's really tough for you. You don't realize how ridiculously wealthy you are. Right Until the American church can begin to see that because we have the mirror of the global big C church, as we call it. So that kind of community, community accountability is really important, and we lack that. We lack that because me as a pastor doesn't hold you accountable. We lack that because I maybe am not held accountable correctly. And we need to work against that. In a lot of churches, male pastors are not held accountable by females, whether they're pastors or other leaders. They're not holding up a mirror to their power and their privilege. The poor in the church get sidelined because the rich are the givers. And so the poor say is kind of pushed to the side. The committees all have the rich people on them. They're all in their place of standing. They're all making the changes in the church and the poor don't get a say. We need black Christians to hold white Christians accountable. Thankfully, I think that this, we made a lot of strides in that in the last couple of years. 
We need the left-leaning church to hold the right-leaning church politically accountable. We need the right-leaning church to hold the left-leaning church account politically. Not to get us to go to their way. We don't have women leaders holding male leaders accountable so that they can achieve power over men. We don't have men trying to achieve power over women. Everyone is holding each other accountable to what? To the Jesus way. And that's why the diversity is strength. It's not helpful for you to hold each other accountable to your own standards. If I ask you as my friend to say, hold me accountable to this problem, and all you're doing is giving me your way of doing it, that's not what James is after. He says diversity is strength because all of us have the indwelling spirit in us. And we're all promising to follow Jesus. And that diversity, actually, when we exercise that accountability with each other in diversity, it requires us to give each other mercy, forgiveness, to be patient and to be listening because we're not like each other. I mean, when I have conversations with my friends that are the most likely, we can talk about anything, even we can even be horrible together and nobody's going to criticize each other. We can be blind together. But when I use that same blindness, say, say I get a little macho with another guy friend and we laugh it off. If there's a woman in that group, that's not going to fly. Same thing with women. If you get a little feminist and you get a little like toxic femininity, if that's even a thing. If, if you get that way and there's a guy in the room, you have to be like, oh my gosh, there's a guy in the room. I'm sorry, I didn't mean it that way. It actually helps us to have that diversity because it's a check and balance for us. But it's additionally helpful in the church because in culture at large, that's just kind of working within whatever the cultural standards are for men and women. But in the church, we all have the same value system, and that's Jesus. So it's a strength, actually, for us to hold ourselves accountable, even though it feels like it's going to slow us down. We'll just use where I come from. Oh, yeah, but that would slow me down, right? We need to get stuff done. That sounds like making committee decisions on everything. No, I think we need accountability as a church. The other, the other thing is weak interpretation. We read the Bible blindly when we read it with all the same people or in the same communities. We make weak assumptions and we build weak cultures. And I think it's because we have these siloed interpretations. So if the American church is writing all the commentaries for the world, and you got Africans in, in Uganda teaching from white commentaries built in American institutions, it's probably going to be a blind spot, right? We have siloed interpretation. But worse than that, I don't think it's all identity politics. I think worse than that is that you can, if you all work off like one, one type of interpretation or one general cultural assumption about a verse, you make big mistakes. Here's an example. Richardson brings this up as well. He says the verse, the poor will always be with you. You know that verse, Matthew 26, 11, the poor will always be with you. Was the Lord's way of telling the disciples that they would always be ministering to the poor. Is that how you read that verse? The poor will always be with you. But this has often been twisted around to mean that the poor are a hopeless case 
and they should only be helped when it's convenient. Well, the poor are always with you. No matter what you do, the poor are always going to be with you. How do we read that verse? If we surround ourselves blindly without accountability, if we're all wealthy and we're talking about how we should treat the poor, perhaps we're going to miss something. My parents said that a personal story, a personal sort of adage in their time, this was common in the 1950s, they said that they used to hear this a lot, poor people, poor ways. So basically what that meant is they're poor because they don't know how to do it. They don't know how to generate wealth. They, don't, they weren't taught well. They're poor because they have poor ways. If you take that in, because you're surrounded by a culture that says, yeah, you can't help the poor. They just have poor ways. And you begin to read your Bible that way. And you see this verse, the poor you will always have with you. And subliminally, you believe that the poor are there because of their own mistakes. That's going to change everything about how you read the Bible. That's going to change everything about how you live as a Christian. Because you're not taking the Jesus way to interpret the Bible. You're taking a cultural way given to you by a tribe. And you're using it to interpret the Bible. And I think a lot of times when we read a verse like the poor will always be with you, we then treat helping the poor as an extracurricular, as an optional mercy when we have time. They're always going to be with me, so I always have the option. I know they need help, but... I got bigger fish to fry instead of a social obligation by the nature of who we are as believers, as the church. The third is dovetailing with this, and this is accepting the world's ways. James warns against this in the previous chapter at the last verse, which actually links to this quite well. He says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. James is very aware of the fact that when we become polluted by the world, we will begin to treat, as the church does, the rich with preference. Because we've actually adopted a storyline that is not the Jesus storyline. We are living and building our value system and deciding where we will work and move and how we will spend our money and how we will save and how we will spend our time all on a different cultural narrative than the Jesus narrative because we've been polluted by the world. So when the church begins to accept the world's ways as their storyline, they're in big trouble. We're in big trouble. What do I mean by a storyline, a cultural storyline? I was listening to um, Margaret Atwood, who's a science fiction author. She wrote a book, some of you may be familiar with, called The Handmaid's Tale, which just blew her into the stratosphere. And she writes, she's very prolific. Um, she was talking, and it was a great conversation um, with the Ezra Klein on the Ezra Klein show. And she was talking about the power of cultural storylines and how we all need a cultural storyline and we all find ourselves in one. She says she lived through the fall of the, of the Berlin, or sorry, she lived through the, the sort of the beginnings and life of the Cold War, right? So post-World War II, I get a little chance to have World War II history again. Post-World War II, no sooner 
had we defeated the Nazis, then immediately Churchill and others were like, we got a new enemy, it's Russia, right? And they're amassing nuclear weapons and they must be stopped. And the Cold War began instantly. And they had, they had East Germany, right? We had West Germany. It was just an immediate switch. And what happened is we built a cultural narrative. We were the victors of World War II. We were the good guys. And so the Nazis were the bad guys. They're gone. What are we going to do? How do we have dignity? How do we decide we're somebody? How do we live with that sense of identity that we are the victors and the winners and we can do no wrong that was so strong in America at that time at the end of World War II? We have a new enemy, the USSR. There were songs at that time that were out there with these patriotic songs and they were basically saying the USSR are devil worshipers, right? And you had the rise of the religious right. And it was basically saying they're bad, they're actually totally evil and we're the good guys. And once you're the good guys, you can do no wrong as long as you're fighting the bad guys, right? That's a cultural narrative. The church out of that birth, out of that time in the 50s onward of what we now know as the American evangelical church, oftentimes aligning themselves with that religious right, said, yeah, we're the good guys. The evangelical church is the good guys. All you guys are the bad guys. Abortion, you're bad guys. Uh, homosexuality, you're bad guys. Bad guys, bad guys, bad guys. We're the good guys. We can do no wrong, right? So the culture war started, all of these things. And was it that we didn't have the Jesus way anymore? We thought we were living the Jesus way, but we had adopted a cultural view that is not the Jesus way. The Jesus way does not say we're all the good guys in this room. That is not what the Jesus way says. The way of the cross does not say you're the good guys. Everyone else is bad guys. That's what the Jews thought. And Jesus went to war against them said, don't call yourself good. There's only one who's good. God is good. The only good guy for Christians is Jesus. He's the only good guy. I am not the good guy. So I cannot adopt that cultural narrative. I need to have a different cultural narrative if I'm going to live like Jesus. And if I'm going to be fair and not place privilege to my tribe, the good guys, whether that's the rich people, whether that's the white people, whether that's the men or the women, whatever it is, I'm going to put all my chips in that basket if I play the good guy, bad guy narrative. But there is a good guy. See, all the truth people go, yeah, good guys, bad guys. All the grace people go, ah, none of it. It's all relative. We're all just human beings in the world, right? No, there is a good guy. But it's Jesus. It's not you. Romans 3.10, Paul quotes Psalms 14. He says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And then in verse 27, he goes on to say, where then is boasting? it's excluded. That's exactly what I've just been saying. We cannot boast in saying we're the good guy. We literally can't say it. It's excluded because there is no one righteous, not even one. So this is James leveling his truth mirror in his story. And he's saying, Christians, stop bragging about how you know better or how you're the good guy. Live as best you can in grace and mercy, full of forgiveness and love and point to Jesus. It's a song we sang this morning, Yet Not I, 
but through Christ in me. In his story, the gold ring versus the filthy clothes carries the cultural narrative of the good guy and the bad guy of rightness and wrongness. The rich guy must have done something right. The poor, poor ways. One is a friend, the other is an enemy. One is the ticket to prosperity, the other is a waste of time. One is helpful, one is a distraction. Have we adopted that view of the poor? Because we will find that our subconscious bias is affecting how we're going to act. And maybe we're running on the norms of culture instead of the norms of Jesus. Maybe we've succumbed to tribalism instead of Christianity. And James says there is no room for tribalism in the church. You've got to get out of the good guy, bad guy narrative. If Jesus is the good guy, then the rest of us are all equally twisted players in the game. Jesus tells a story, his own mirror story, in Matthew 18, 21 through 35. And in this story, he tells about the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Here's a man who comes up to the king and he has a huge debt, unpayable, unbelievably massive debt. He has been spending other people's money and he's just gotten in so much trouble. And the point is, of the story is he doesn't even think he's in trouble. He's, he's playing like a fantasy game. This is like when the government is just spending, 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 and it's like it's done in not even real money anymore. He's just spending other people's money, and then he gets called for it. How are you going to deal with this? And he's in an unbelievable amount of debt, a suicidal level of debt. And he couldn't pay it, so he begs for mercy. And the king cancels the debt. Then the man meets a fellow servant who is underneath him, who owes him a hundred denarii. And the man demands payment or he'll be thrown in prison or the servant will be thrown in prison when he can't pay. Of course, the irony is not lost on us of the story, but we are still blind because what do we do when we hear that story? We judge that guy. We go, how could you do that? You've just been forgiven like so much. No, we, we need to identify with that guy. Just like Nathan says to David, you are that man. Jesus says, you're that man. You're that man. You're the one that's been forgiven a debt you could never possibly repay. And you're going to nitpicking around on little things. What's the answer? James just says, show mercy, show mercy. Maybe we think, oh, I don't really play favorites. But we haven't thought about, do I show prejudice? Because that's just another way of playing favorites. Anyone who shows pre prejudice, somebody who's not going to give mercy to somebody else that's been given to them. And what happens? What happens to the servant? It's not a good ending, is it? Matthew 18, 31. When the other servant saw what when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? 
In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. And Jesus says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive or have mercy on your brother or sister from your heart. This is how the heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. Let that sink in for a second. Jesus, the fullness of truth and grace, the ultimate judge and the giver of mercy. Do we downplay the judge because of the mercy and the love? No, I don't know if you have the iPad, but there's an image that I wanted to put up that I've, I've shown this before, I think. This is Scott Erickson who does these. Um, I love this image. This is called Forgive Thy Other. It says it all. It just says it all. This is mercy. This is an image of what mercy looks like. When we give mercy to someone else, this is what it feels like. That man on the right hugging the man with the quiver and the arrows in his back. That's the image of forgiveness and mercy. Of course, Jesus is talking to people who are going to do that to him. And in solidarity, every time we sin, we have done that to Christ. We have shot arrows in his back and he has come and he has given us a hug. And he said, I forgive you. I was reading in a business magazine that people follow incentives, not advice. People follow incentives, not advice. Maybe as Christians, we need some incentive. There's actually, there's two incentives given. There is the incentive of judgment and there's the incentive of mercy. You can't have mercy without judgment. And you can't have judgment from a loving God without mercy. That's our incentive to really get that is the incentive that should motivate everything we do as Christians. But what we've decided is that we will choose our will over God's will when it, resu- when it results in short-term wins. And usually sin is a short-term win with a long-term failure on the back end. So James' message to the church is the long-term power of grace out of our inescapable debt has to be more powerful than the short-term wins of sin. That is the act of Christian discipline. That is faith and hope and trust. And until it is, until that incentive is strong enough for us, we won't change our behavior. And we'll leave devastation in our wake. We'll leave prejudice in our wake. We'll succumb to tribalism. Our churches will be full of a lack of accountability, weak interpretation. We'll adopt cultural narratives. All of those things because we don't see the long-term power of grace that's given to us. And we're looking for short-term wins because we want to be the good guy. But the only cultural narrative is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The only cultural narrative that works is that image of forgiveness. Love your enemy. Love God and love neighbor. The two most important commandments.
John, 1 John 4, verse 10 says, this is love, not that we loved God, that's religion, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We do love ourselves. It's important for us as Christians to love ourselves, but we do it because Christ loved us. Because he is good, not because we are good. We love ourselves because he sees us as redeemable and he knows best. So we are redeemable. The social, the social message right now is that you're lovable. Love yourself. But why? Why should I love myself? Christianity has the answer that I should love myself because Jesus loved me. Society does not have the answer. It is not just because we are amazing human beings. We should love ourselves because we evolved from the ape. We're, we should love ourselves because we exist. No. We're loved because God loved us. We are not lovable <laughs> in and of ourselves. And simultaneously, we're not lovable because we're moral and good and upright. We're delusional if we think we're lovable because we're moral and good and upright. And the Bible's clear about that. Verse 11 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So here's the beauty. God is invisible. The only way he's made visible, or a way, I should say, the primary way that God is made visible is through our love for one another. So James is saying, by not practicing favoritism, you are doing a part in being the visibility of God's love on earth as the church, treating people in equality. Romans 3.22 says, God's righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So James has turned the tables on the church. Now he flips the script. And he goes, don't do judgment. Don't practice judgment. Practice mercy. So I want to give you hypothetical. What would this story look like? Man with the gold rings, the great being the, sitting in the great box seats, and the poor man in the nosebleeds. What if the poor man had been had been given a reclining seat with a footstool to keep his feet off of the dirt, or box seats, and the rich man? if not shown to the nosebleeds, at least told he could find himself his own seat. Doesn't that seem utterly radical to you? That we would have a rich person come in and we'd say, I don't know, find some room. Poor person comes, we go, sit right here. Come in and sit right here. Rich person's coming after for potluck and we say, um, we got to get all these poor people through. And then we'll see if there's any food. Rich people trying to go on the camping trip and we say, we, we want to get poor people in here. We want to make sure everybody's there. And then uh, we, we were going to sponsor the trip with the church's money, but actually, um, could you cover yourself? Yeah. 
it seems a little radical. It seems a little risky. Obviously, if you practice that on a larger scale, it gets a lot more radical and risky, but that's the point. In James's view, in the Jewish view, actually, the richest person should be the most generous person there is. The richest person should be the most humble person there is. And that's amazing. What if our image of richness, of wealth, came with it the obligation and responsibility to eat last, to be last, to have the worst seat in the house? See, the cultural narrative tells us that being rich gets you everything you want. But the biblical narrative says being rich makes you responsible and it gives you the seat of honor of stewarding the world into wholeness. So the rich person will sit in the nosebleeds. The biblical rich person will go sit in the nosebleeds and feel completely content and utterly joyful that he has brought some equality to that stadium, that he has used his generosity to begin to heal the world. He is not the good guy. He's the bad guy. There's only one good guy, and it's Jesus, and he died for everybody else. And in his generosity, all people get to eat at the table. So as we desire richness, church, and we succumb to the world's cultural narrative that richness is what is good, do we see that that's actually what richness is going to ask from us? Jesus is saying, I'm calling you into partnership. So start now. Because guess what? Everybody in this room is rich by world standards. We're all rich. So we actually already all have that obligation. You thought it was for the rich guy that's going to walk in here one day and we're going to get to do that. No, it's for all of us. We all have that obligation to eat last. We all have that obligation to sit in the nosebleeds and give away the box seats. Richardson writes this, only when the rich become an example of humility can they be an instrument that glorifies God. I think that's all I need to say. That's all I need to say. So let's pray. God, guilty as charged. We're going to look for all sorts of ways when we find ourselves guilty to get out of it, to make reparations, to do things that will undo the past, but they just can't be undone. God, we ask for your mercy on our souls. We ask for your mercy on our sins. And God, we ask that you would reveal the sins that we make by not doing. We may say we're moral and upright. We're doing everything right. But God, we sin by not doing things today. By going about our day in the status quo, we are going to sin by your law. So we ask that you would reveal and show a mirror to us as a church. God, as we serve the community in this neighborhood, God, as we look for our vision as a church, may we realize our incredible wealth. 
And may we ask for your mercy. And may we receive it with joy and contentment. In Jesus' name, amen.